You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Welcome back to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. My guest is Dr. Matthew Bates. We're going to be discussing his new book, Why the Gospel? Living the Good News of King Jesus with Purpose. Matt's done a lot of important scholarship on early Christian interpretation of the Bible. His first book was on Paul's interpretation of Scripture, the Old Testament. And then he wrote another book that came out in 2015 called The Birth of the Trinity, which looks at early Christian interpretation of the Old Testament and provides some really fresh insights into the conversation of how early Christians were reading their Bible, driving towards the development of Trinitarian theology. So if you're looking for something a little more academic and meaty, I'd highly recommend that book. More recently, he's been doing a lot of work on gospel, and so he wrote a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone, which I highly recommend. And then he also wrote a book called Gospel Allegiance. So he's been focused a lot on uh, this topic. And in this most recent book that we talk about, Matt's going to help unpack for us the why of the gospel. So not just what is the gospel, but what's the purpose? Why does our Bible tell this particular story? And what are the implications for our everyday life? So before we jump into the conversation with Matt about his excellent book, I just want to remind you that our next class for the Center for Bible Study, CBS, is coming up in a few weeks, beginning on May 16th. We're going to do a five-week study of the story of Scripture, very much in line with the project of Matt's book. We're talking about the kingdom of God from creation to new creation. So if you'd like to join us in some form or another, even if you just want the recordings for the class free of charge, I would highly encourage you to sign up and register for that. There'll be a link to register for the course along with a link to Matt's Amazon author page. And with that, and without further ado, let's jump into our episode. All right. Well, welcome everybody back to the podcast. Uh, super excited today to welcome Dr. Matthew Bates. Matt and I, we've known each other for a little while just through academic conferences and such. I had the privilege of reviewing one of his earlier books, The Birth of the Trinity, which I highly recommend is a really excellent uh, book. So that was the first time I was introduced to his work. But when I saw he had the new book coming out, I was really excited to have him on the podcast. So yeah, thanks, Matt, for being here and for uh, coming on to chat about why the gospel with us. Hey, thanks, Max. Yeah, it's it's always a delight to get to talk to other people who are immersed in the work. So I appreciate it. Great. Well, could you uh, just maybe begin with just sharing a little bit about your own background and what led you into biblical studies? How did you get to be where you're at right now? Yeah, uh, that's a, a huge question, obviously, that can right. answer from multiple directions. But um, I did grow up in Northern California and was um, a Christian from time immemorial. Um, I remember one of my very first memories in life would be, you know, praying a prayer to ask Jesus into my heart, whatever that might mean. Mm -hmm. And so my mother was very instrumental in my faith, but not much happened um, in that direction early on in my childhood uh, because my parents weren't churchgoers. And so it was a very private kind of pietistic um, faith, especially for my mother. And I'm not sure what that meant for my father at that time. Um, mm -hmm. He's a committed Christian now, and I think to a degree was then. Yeah. And so um, I actually relate one of the stories that um, was instrumental in bringing me into um, the faith in a more substantive way um, in the book. 
And it's a story about a man named Doyle Canada, who I call mm. um, somebody who is nameless, but gospel famous. Mm -hmm. um, and he's somebody nobody else has heard of in the world, apart from a few people in my family and outside of my family. But um, he actually had a, a tragic mill accident. He was a foreman in a mill and um, a piece of two by four shot through the air and went through his back. There was an improperly installed piece of equipment, severed his spine. Mm -hmm. And we all thought he was going to die. He had all kinds of, you know, wood splinters embedded in his body and, um, you know, was in the ICU for months. But um, mm -hmm. as cha a chaplain visited him there in the hospital, he uh, became a Christian and he felt that in some way or another, God had given him a second chance and that he should have died. And the thing that was remarkable about Doyle is he was he, he wasn't bitter about what had happened to him. He just saw it as a second chance in life. Hmm. And not that there wasn't some sorrow or grief over not being able to walk. Of course, he wanted to walk. Right. But um, but anyway, it was through his testimony that my family began getting involved in church. And so this was an independent Bible church in Northern California, very traditionally minded. Um, and I'm still a traditionally minded person by and large. Um, but it would be on the, you know, the King James only kind of fundamentalist okay. kind of things. Yeah. Um, so not something that I would adhere to today. Uh, but nevertheless, these people love Jesus. And I'm very grateful for um, Grace Community uh, Bible Church and uh, Pastor Henry and his wife, Penny, mm -hmm. um, and their care for my family and for me. Um, and so, yeah, there was just a slow deepening. Um, but really, it was whenever I was in college, um, I was majoring in physics, had a lot of questions, took a New Testament course um, as a sophomore. Hmm. And that really opened my eyes to scripture, to whole different dimensions of thought life around God, and um, and also helped me clean up some sin issues uh, that were persistent in my life at that time. And it was a really transformative experience. And so from there, just, yeah, continued. Sure. Sure. And some of my listeners might know this, but others probably don't. You actually, so you're a Protestant, but you teach Bible at a Catholic uh, university. What, what's that like? Yeah. Well, it's um, obviously um, fun, challenging, um, yeah. all those things, but um, Quincy university is a, uh, you know, it's mostly a local regional university. So we attract on the one hand, you know, people come to, for a variety of reasons to play sports, you know, for academic purposes, mm -hmm. but we primarily draw from Chicago area, St. Louis area, our own local area, you know, cause we're in central Illinois. Mm -hmm. um, and so through that, especially cause some people come to bring to, just to play sport or whatever it might be, that's their main motivation. We really get a mix. So yeah. it's a Catholic university, but, um, yeah, there's also a mission dimension to everything that's going on here. Sure. Um, so we have a pretty large, you know, contingent of Protestant students too. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty open-ended dialogue. Right now, it's interesting. I'm doing a capstone with um, two of my seniors, and one's a, a devout Roman Catholic, the other is Missouri Synod Lutheran. Okay. Um, and I'm, you know, a non-denominational Protestant, and right. so we're we're having an interesting conversation about yeah a variety of things right now. Yeah. So it's it's a good time, and it's very educational for all of us to rub shoulders and rub yeah. minds. But it hasn't been a, a tense situation for me, you know, in terms of um, they knew I was Protestant when they hired me. It's no, no mystery, right? I wasn't pulling the wool over their eyes, right. um, you know, and so I, I think that, yeah, it's been a good fit for me overall. That's awesome. No, I think that's really wonderful. That's really wonderful. All right. Well, maybe we can jump in. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you began your scholarship focusing on issues of interpretation, like how Paul was reading scripture and and then how new, other New Testament authors also were reading scripture in kind of these fresh and creative ways. And it was leading to deeper thinking about the uh, identity of God and, and, and so forth. But you've really been focused recently in your writing with... Uh, helping the church broadly think about the gospel, 
right? So you wrote Salvation by Allegiance Alone, which I'd love to hear. I mean, maybe our audience would like to hear just a little bit about why you translate pistis or what's typically faith as allegiance and how that might be helpful uh, in our thinking and then the gospel precisely. And so, and this book, Why the Gospel, takes off from your other work, but gives more of the the, the purpose of what is the, the overall purpose of the gospel. So maybe I'd love to just hear, I think my audience would too, maybe just a little bit about why you were drawn to this topic and why you felt like, yeah, these books were so needed at this time in, in the church. Yeah. So um, yeah, the, my journey into the the topic of salvation as, or as a kind of a research topic um, on the one hand, it began back in my seminary days. This would have been, you know, 2001, 2002, as I was reading some N.T. Wright, and he uh -huh. was prompting all kinds of, of new ways of thinking for me, um, especially his Jesus and the Victory of God and other books like that. Um, so Wright was uh, certainly a formative influence. And so as I was reading some of his work, it got me thinking more about Pistis. And it, it was on the one hand, indirectly stimulated by Wright, but also just kind of a you know, a background question as I was doing, you know, my own reading in scripture and in Second Temple Judaism. And so, uh, yeah, as, as part of that, I just had this background kind of like sense that that we needed to do something more with that mm -hmm. word, that faith, um, although obviously it's a helpful gloss in some places in scripture and other places it's not so helpful, um, and wanting to maybe think about more nuanced ways of, of speaking about pistis. Um, and anyway, as I was doing doctoral research, as you mentioned, I began especially with Paul and scripture. That was my, my PhD research. Um, and as I was looking at Paul and scripture, my, my doctoral dissertation was not really about how Paul interprets any one text, mm -hmm. but was more about like an overall theory of Paul's interpretation. Like, did right. Paul have a hermeneutic? Like, right. what is his overarching theory of scriptural interpretation? Um, and as part of that, like Paul actually has some key statements about about his hermeneutic, and he weds it to the gospel. And so it, it sort of forced me to do some really careful, close work on the gospel mm. as I was thinking about how does the gospel inform Paul's hermeneutic, right? Because we have some of our classic statements about the gospel in Paul's letters, like, you know, Romans 1, 2 through 4, where Paul uh, speaks about the gospel being promised in advance, mm -hmm. right? And so that language, like promised in advance, like what does Paul mean by that, right? Mm -hmm. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, right, where Paul talks about, you know, the Christ, you know, um, that he died for our sins, well, in accordance with the scriptures, right? What does this in accordance with the scriptures mean? And then it's the same with that he was raised on the third day. It's in accordance with the scriptures. So that really forced it forced me to attend to this topic with more care and got mm. me interested in, you know, from an academic angle. Now you asked you asked some other questions about like why the church might need that today. And and that's a whole, you know, that's a whole nother um, direction we could take it. But I'll, I'll, I'll pass the ball back to you and see if you have a follow-up question. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I mean, it, it's it's helpful to kind of hear the story of what led you into that direction. I think our stories are very similar in that Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, helped us probably both clarify our thinking on certain things. And I, I do see that influence in your work in really helpful ways, it, especially, and maybe we could start here, why do you think it's so important to begin with the announcement of Jesus as king when we're thinking about the gospel? 
what you what you show is in a lot of the articulations of the gospel, there's truth to those things, but it's like the puzzle isn't put together correctly and it's not coming in the right order. <laughs> and yes. when you when you do that, then you get a distortion. Uh, you get these various distortions, some which are slightly damaging, others which are very damaging. So why do you think it's so important to begin with the kingship of Jesus rather? So really beginning with God rather than beginning with human beings, our problem. We're, we're sinners. We need a savior kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you, you actually track the logic of my book quite well when you say that, yeah, it's like there's a lot of truth out there in other articulations of the gospel, but the puzzle's not being put together correctly or, and especially the order not being properly followed. Mm -hmm. And I think that scripture suggests that the order we, that we must begin with is that Jesus is the King, yes. right? That he is the Christ. And that's really the essence of the gospel. Yeah. And I think that there is, a, you know, probably just because of our own pressing needs, right. And our own existential desires. Like we, we, we sense like a lack of wholeness and a brokenness and mm -hmm. a sense that we need to be forgiven and all of these things. And so like, is it surprising that we tend to put us first, ourselves first in the story, right? That mm -hmm. um, is it surprising that we would be selfish in this way and make the story all about us rather than the king first? Not really. Um, and so really when people think, I think uh, like the, the title of the book, Why the Gospel, I think that people's like initial reaction is I've, as I've tested this question sometimes to pastoral audience. And I would, and if I asked them why the gospel, like the, 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 the answer that most people go, there's two answers people go to most frequently. One would be because we need forgiveness. That's mm -hmm. the, that's answer. Number one, answer number two would be God's love. And both of those are accurate, but again, they're not where scripture wants to start. Like scripture wants to start by saying that we need a King, mm -hmm. right. And that we have to get that put in place first, partly because there's no salvation apart from his kingship, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it only comes through it. Mm -hmm. And so like, whenever we, we, we cut to the chase too quickly and we say like, well, what I really need is forgiveness. Mm. Uh, and what I really need is an ex to experience emotionally God's love. Then we, we short circuit, right? We short circuit the whole process, mm -hmm. which God is actually wanting to restore honor and glory through the gift of a King. And we need to kind of get that, 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 that in place first. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that that's really helpful. And, you know, just as a challenge to listeners, when you look at scripture, and you look at the way the word gospel is used in the scriptures, I, I think you'll find that, that the Matt's articulation is very accurate. Even the term gospel to announce the good news has roots in like the prophet Isaiah, which we've talked about before on this show. And the announcement there in Isaiah 52 is God is king. <laughs> it's yeah. throughout scripture, it's actually good news to hear that announcement, God is king, because of who the king is. And so beginning there, I think is so critical. So I, I really appreciate that you begin there and help help us really focus on that. And it also breaks down some divides that people have unhelpfully created between like the Gospels and Paul, for example. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, it makes sense of the kingdom of God framework, right? Where we see right. Jesus proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom of God on the one hand, right. and then we see Paul speaking in what would seem like a different key. But when we realize that Christ doesn't mean a name, right? But Christ is a claim. Right, yes. It's a claim that he's the Messiah. Yeah, that we begin to see yeah, how the kingdom of God and and Jesus's messianic office fit together and that really it's a similar discourse. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit about. So the, the other thing you do in the book really helpfully is kind of outline forget exact terminology, but kind of like the cycle of glory. Uh, you do a lot with glory language in the book. So I'd love to give you a chance to kind of unpack that. But I'll just preface it with saying, I think what I really like about what you're doing here is 
you're helping us to think teleologically or thinking towards the end, right? So when we have a gospel that isn't the biblical gospel, or we have a gospel that has these kind of, it doesn't get the priorities straight, we don't have the clear end in mind. And if you don't have a clear end in mind, you don't really have a clear sense of mission as the people of God. And a lot of it strikes me, a lot of what we do in church sometimes is we're kind of just making it up as we go because we don't, we, we know we need to be saved, uh, but we don't have this like very clear end in mind of like, what is the biblical story driving towards? And you have a really helpful six part articulation of, uh, yeah, of the kind of the drama of restoration, but how humanity, creation, God are all interwoven together and you do it around the topic of glory. So would you mind just kind of giving us a little bit of your, like how you got, how you go about that and, um, and how you're understanding the term glory. Yeah. So um, Paul in second Corinthians four, four speaks about the gospel of the glory of, of the Christ, who is the image of God, right? And that's I'm paraphrasing, but that's close to what he mm-hmm. says. Um, and so we see that like Paul saw somehow or another, like glory is bound up with gospel. Right. And so, um, yeah, part of the articulation in the book would be to try to recover that language mm-hmm. of glory which I think we use a lot in the church, but we often use it in ways which we, which are like just kind of infinitely plastic as a kind of vague praise term mm-hmm. without really grounding it in, I think it's biblical origin. Um, and so on the one hand, we have kavod in, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, right, which would be like a, like a weighty, a term of weight um, and honor. Um, and we maybe sense a weightiness of presence when somebody mm-hmm. famous comes into a room. Right. Um, and then it's cl- connected closely to the Greek word doxa, right, um, which also has to do with reputation. And so um, like fame, reputation is part of the meaning of glory. And when we hear it, we tend to like just think of heavenly lights or of angels or uh, whatever it might be. Right. When we hear the word glory, um, well, we often like glory. Hallelujah. Right. It's all just right. kind of one one kind of praise term. Right. But when we see it actually has to do with reputation, that's helpful um, because it helps us see on the one hand, like how God's glory is something that's intrinsic to him that can't be compromised, that he has like um, uh, a glory that is his own glory that belongs to him by virtue of his attributes, mm. um, that God uh, shows covenant faithfulness, um, that he shows mercy, that he's just. Like these are things that like he can never be impeached uh, in terms of his glory in, in terms of speaking about these things that are his uh, eternal possession. But on the other hand, like scripture calls humans to give God the glory, to ascribe glory to him. We see this all over the Psalter, yeah. right? Um, and we're called to like to, to appropriately give God glory. And then if God isn't getting that glory, then God is experiencing a glory deficit. So how do those things fit together, right? On the one hand, we we want to say like God's glory can't be compromised because of, of its attributes, like that make God glorious no matter what. But on the other hand, it seems like scripture speaks about there a possibility of there being a glory deficit. If people aren't giving God the glory, he's lacking it somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we can bring those together by speaking about like a subjective side of glory and an objective side of glory, right? And we can see that scripture uses the language of glory to attend to, to both ideas. Mm-hmm. And so although on the one hand god can't ever lose his intrinsic glory on the other hand he can lose his subjective glory if we don't give him the appropriate glory so yeah as part of the glory cycle then um i have an articulation it's like a a kind of a six-part step of leading people through that to help help people see the logic of mm-hmm. of the glory language and so it begins obviously with god and glory but god then gives his glory to humans in order to rule on god's behalf so 
on the one step one is God's own glory, but step two is that glory devolves onto humans, right? As God intends humans to rule on his behalf, but then humans fail to carry the glory. And in light of that, then creation is not receiving the glory that um, it needs. Um, that mm-hmm. would be God's very own glory. Mm-hmm. And then, so as, as a response to that, then God ultimately, ultimately sends his own son, right? Who is the fully glorious one so that by gazing on him, mm-hmm. we can then begin to be transformed. So the incarnation would be step four, right? As the, uh, as the gospel launches the glory recovery through the incarnation, especially. And then mm-hmm. we have the chance to be transformed through viewing. That would be step five. Mm-hmm. And then finally we will reign glory, glory, Gloriously with the king, ultimately, once we come to be conformed to his image. Mm-hmm. So that's a sort of a six part, you know, um, yeah, way of speaking about glory recovery. Yeah, that, I know. I think that's really helpful. And um, I mean, another way of, I think you could correct me if I'm wrong, but another w- thing that I'm hearing here is this helps you uh, see the intent, God's intention of the human vocation, humans being made in God's image, uh, the distortion of that that project and the recovery of that project to its ultimate end so that human beings can perfectly image God in this uh, restored new creation kind of language. So it, it, the glory idea is tied up with the human, uh, human vocation. Would you, would you say that? Yeah, Yeah, that's why. So God, when I talked about God's glory devolving onto humans in order to rule on his behalf, yeah, that's part of our human dignity of work and, and so on and so forth. Yes, very much. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, much, much more could be said about the glory cycle, but um, yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah. that, that yeah, helps listeners. Um, yeah. Get a sense. Yeah, no, no. I think that's, I think it's really, really great. One thing that was striking too, that I think, I think you draw on this in the book as well, by the way, thanks for translating uh, Romans 3.23, not as falling short of the glory of God, but as lacking the glory of God. I think mm. that's a really unfortunate English translation that we have sometimes that ends up fitting that verse into a kind of moralistic framework, right? Like none of us can measure up to God's standards and then we, but it's actually about glory. And if you look at Romans chapter one, you know, people hand themselves over, they turn away from the glory of God. Right. And so our glory is tied into um, giving glory to the creator because that's how we're designed to function. So there's the lacking there. Um, so that, that was really helpful. Yeah, I could point um, listeners to a couple of helpful books like um, Haley Gorens and Jacob's yeah, book. In the yeah. image, what's it called in in uh, in God's in the image of the sun? In the image of the sun, I think is the name of the book. Yeah. Um, but it's really, I mean, her. It was a doctoral dissertation. It was revised. I think forwarded by N.T. N.T. Wright. Yeah. But I believe that, um, yeah, like that's really a the-, the whole book is really a theology of glory more than anything else. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, missionary theologian Jackson Wu, who um, I-, I believe is in the process of-, of of revealing his true name, he was writing under a pseudonym. I think his name is Brad Vaughn. Um, but anyway, his book um, uh, that he wrote uh, on um, reading Romans with Eastern eyes is mm-hmm. really a nice treatment of glory. Um, so a couple shout outs to some good projects yeah, cool. that people want to do. Um, some more work on glory. Excellent. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The idea of exchanging glory in Romans, right? Um, and that, yeah, like us, like that being an, an act of idolatry and then the recovery of glory, right? As being what, so one way of speaking about this is to say that like, we tend to think that salvation is just from things, right? Just from yeah. sin and from death and and um, from the deliverance from evil powers. But really scripture wants to say about the fundamental purposes of the gospel, that it's actually for restorative purposes too, right? That it's not just about a salvation from, but also a salvation for. And that salvation hasn't fully happened until we're restored and completely in terms of glory. Yeah, that's great. 
Another thing I really appreciated about your your book is something that I'm really trying to push against in my own classrooms and work with students and in churches is pushing against uh, the ways in which I think uh, like hyper individualism in in America really is. I think parasitic towards the gospel um, because when we begin with our individual salvation, it really does become all about us as the individual. So you do a really nice job of, yeah, beginning with God, beginning with Jesus's kingship, but then also articulating it like we're all saved together. That really has to be the starting point, you know, of how we're thinking about salvation. So I'm just curious to hear kind of your thinking about that as well some of the challenges maybe that we face in church. I mean, I, I, um, I remember being in a seminary talking with pastors and I had one pastor say, but I am an individual. I can't not think about it. It was like the framework was so ingrained that thinking about salvation at a corporate level was, I mean, I think the guy thought I was a communist or something. Like, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't know. Like it was, it was very interesting. So I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, well, I, I try to give an analogy in the book, um, kind of as a wrap up to one of the chapters about th to think about salvation as a heart surgery. Um, and um, but the, the trick is to not think about individual like it being an individual. Heart right, surgery, right. But to think about it being like a surgery for all creation, that all of creation is like in morbid decay. Right. Because it's lacking the glory of God that God intended humans to bring it. So human sin, the problem with human sin is not just human sin in and of itself. Or the problem is human sin causes harm that prevents us from from actually distributing the glory that we're intended to distribute to creation. So you think of glory in this analogy is almost like blood, like that needs to like like run through all of creation and it's not getting distributed because at the heart of creation there's a problem and at the heart of creation the is the human, right? So the right. the the heart surgery is a human replacement surgery. Like the humans are the heart of creation, but it's not an individual human. It's all of us, right? right? Um, and the idea would be that like God has to provide a heart transplant and then the incarnation then would be the heart transplant mm. right where god like places an ideal king an ideal human in the midst of humanity so that through gazing on him mm. like we can then um we can then begin to distribute you know the uh we can begin to distribute the glory to creation properly now mm. of course that's not to you know deny the atonement or like that's all obviously part of it as well too right but like the thing that tends to get left out we're we're, we're good at speaking about the atonement right? yeah. the thing that gets left out is the enthronement. well yeah right 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 <laughs> yeah. i'd yeah. say we're good about speaking about the atonement whether we're always speaking about it well is another question that's but true we yes, definitely like to point. speak about it. yeah 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 we do yeah, yeah. No, that's so, yeah, that, that's really well said. And you have a great section on the book, uh, in the books, short section, but I think really important. Uh, the incarnation is not plan B. It's the, the son, the eternal son was always going to take on human flesh. And that was the ultimate destiny of the joining of God and humanity together. And, you know, when I think about the, the image of God, what, it, what that, I mean, God created humanity in God's image with the intention that God would become human. And I think that's a really beautiful part of our story that doesn't often get um, yeah. enough attention in Protestant circles. Absolutely. Yeah. The The idea is, I, or one way of putting it is like incarnation anyway, like it would have yes, happened regardless. That's how you say right? it. That's how you say yeah, it. Yeah, that, yeah. that it would have happened regardless. And and this is, as you probably well know, in line with the early church. I don't get really get into this in this book, but like Irenaeus and yeah. you know, Athanasius, the whole Eastern tradition, especially um, within the early church fathers, were very invested in the idea that the incarnation would have happened regardless. And the, the basic 
idea is that humans like were created by God, um, like with Jesus as the prototype already, like that the Christ, the king that would take on human flesh as Jesus was already like the ideal human. And that Adam is sort of a preliminary copy, right, of something greater that has already been made or already conceived by God. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that we then um, the plan then was always for like humans to be brought to maturity. Mm -hmm. So some of the sometimes like we, we, we might think that the only reason Jesus is sent is to deal with our sin problem. Right. Um, I think a more accurate answer would be that, no, like God created humans in an immature state and he expected there to be growth and development. Yeah. Like the whole problem gets derailed through sin yeah. in a much more like climactic way yeah. and in dramatic way than what we would have anticipated. Yeah. Um, but like, nevertheless, like God's plan was incarnation from the beginning. Yeah. Right. So that we could see the ideal king who would then bring creation to its fullness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amen. Yeah, I love it. Um, and, you know, another facet to this, too, that I've I've noticed, I'd be curious to see if you have as well. But when we don't pay attention to that dynamic of the story, there's kind of this tendency to just see then everything Jesus does in the Gospels is like, oh, that's just God with a human suit zipped on. And so we, we can't really actually take that life seriously we're just supposed to feel really bad about our sin and say, thank you, Lord, for, for delivering me. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen the Sermon on the Mount preached that way, that it's just this impossible standard. And Jesus is God. So of course, you know, he can talk about it, but it's not like we're actually supposed to imitate Jesus. I mean, who could do that? Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and what we're missing is like the gospels are laying out for us what humanity is, is supposed to look like in Jesus. And I, I've even seen some scholars, I think, who want to affirm that then push back against the divinity side because they've gotten fed up with the functional docetism within a lot of evangelical mm -hmm. uh, uh, theology. But I, I mean, I don't think we have to divide those two. We have the, uh, you know, the eternal son taking on human flesh, showing us what it means to be human throughout the gospels and we have to take that very seriously um in my in my opinion yeah absolutely yeah i think there is this as you said functional docetism right that that does um yeah um impact our churches so yeah i think that uh, whenever we realize that jesus is serious right in terms of um outlining a program for human flourishing I like um, Jonathan Pennington's language, um, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of thinking about the sermons on the Mount and the blessing, the blessings yeah. that are intended there as something that's oriented toward human flourishing yeah. and Jesus's words at the end of the sermon, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Right. Like that. Right. Um, like we, we need to be thinking um, in terms of um, yeah. Like Jesus actually through the Holy spirit is giving us like on the one hand, the, the, the instrument, the spirit that will help us to do that. But on the other hand, the model, Right? Yeah. Jesus is the king who embodies his own laws and who shows us the, the way of perfection. Yeah. And then we, our human destiny is to meet that. And yeah. to, I like, I like, that's part of the reason I've always been a huge C.S. Lewis fan is Lewis mm. was never shy about um, seeing a full, yeah, like a, a full kind of ontological movement in that direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he was pretty steeped in, in Eastern church fathers too. Yeah, so that's probably why, <laughs> or at least part of the reason why. Yeah. Yeah, Lewis um, was a genius. I mean, he really yeah. was. I mean, he's his ability to communicate on a popular level, but the depth of his learning is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk enthronement a little bit? So one of the, you know, one of the other pieces that is really often lacking or missing, or we don't really fully get the why, which is to the point in your book, why the enthronement, what's the enthronement all about? So Jesus is raised from the dead. He's enthroned. 
um, I teach an acts class almost every semester, and I challenge students to track the the way that the gospel is articulated in acts, asking mm. them to say what's there, what's emphasized, and what isn't there. And that actually comes out of my own experience as a college student when I first started reading the Bible. I was in a uh, study group with a college pastor and a group of guys. And I, I asked the question, we were going through Acts and I said, I don't see them talking about the gospel the way that we talk about it in church. Like they just keep talking about resurrection, Jesus being enthroned. Like, where's the language about I'm a horrible sinner and I want to go to heaven when I die. I just don't, where is it? I, mm-hmm. And um, the pastor just said, yeah, that, that is interesting. And then we just kept moving on. <laughs> yeah. And uh-huh. So, um, so I, I, I challenged my students to say like, why, like we need to pay attention to the enthronement. Why is the enthronement so important? And I always have an exam question, you know, what, what, um, what part is not really central to the gospel and acts and how it's articulated. And I have enthronement as one of the options as being a not. And even after the class, yeah. a good portion of students still circle enthronement. Yeah. So we have a real problem right now in the church, understanding the significance of Jesus being the enthroned Messiah right now. So I'd love to hear a little bit of your thoughts about, about that. Yeah, well, yeah, that could be answered in a number of different directions. On the one hand, we don't want to like, you know, cut off kind of Jesus's kingly office from his priestly. So um, on one hand, as he's, you know, brought into heavenly glory and seated at God's right hand, it says both priest and king. Mm -hmm. And so we would want to see, you know, Jesus as offering, you know, um, his own blood, right, as uh, in the heavenly tabernacle, as Hebrews would teach, right, and that we would want to understand that as being an important dimension of of him finishing the work of salvation for us. So the enthronement on the one hand is necessary for Jesus's inst- like finishing the work of salvation in the sense of yeah. um, even the work of the cross, right, is not complete in, in terms of its atoning work, right. right, until we have Jesus installed as the high priest who brings the offering of his own blood. Right. Um, so we have that dimension going on that we want to think about. And then Jesus as our high priestly intercessor. But on the other hand, the dimension of him as king, right, that he's now ruling the cosmos um, from the right hand of God. And this I would see as an act of new creation on the one hand that Jesus's resurrected body is um, it's an it's in the Gospel of John. It's an eighth sign. Right. It's the, yeah. uh, the eighth day of creation, kind of like sign of a new creation kind of thing. Uh, the sending the Holy Spirit as new creation activity. Um, and so I would see that Jesus's resurrected body then is something that is the foundation of new creation. Um, and so as he's installed at the right hand of God, I think we need to understand that as a physical installation. Like, I don't know what that means. Uh, he just sends him bodily up, you know, to the right hand of God. And I think we have to see that in, um, as a signal that God's new creation work has begun, mm-hmm. even if we don't understand what that would mean metaphysically or ontologically in terms of space time today, those are all deep mysteries. Right. Um, but I think nevertheless, like the fact that there is an actual physical human with an actual body a raised new body like in the cosmos ruling the universe like that is important for glory distribution to the universe Mm. Um, and that if we don't if there if there's no human who's actually ruling the universe then there's no like that's that's how god designed the universe to work that's how he designed it to get glory and so it's essential to glory distribution Mm. and it's essential to glory distribution partly because it's god's plan that we would look to this enthroned king and that we then can come to be conformed to his image so that we can start distributing the glory along with him Mm. and we can co-reign with him in that way so his installation of the right hand of god in a body right is like is because god uses human bodies to distribute his glory through creation 
Um, Jesus is now the embodied enthroned one who's doing that, and that he invites many others to partner with him through a transformative process as we gaze upon him. Hmm. So like that Jesus actually has a human body and is ruling as king right now, I think is essential for the restoration of glory to all creation, right, through um, our own embodiment as our bodies come to be transformed in such a way that um, our behaviors reflect his behavior. Very good. Yeah. I like that you said a couple times in the conversation, which is also what you say in the book, that the work of salvation isn't complete on the cross. I, I think that's a mistake that sometimes gets articulated in church. And I think actually part of it has roots in scripture in that sometimes New Testament authors, in my opinion, speak kind of synecdotally about the work of salvation. And they just use the term like cross or something like that to talk about the entire uh, the entire process. So let's think about this for a minute. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If if the work of salvation requires Jesus offering himself in heaven, that's part of the, the atoning sacrifice or offering, if, if Hebrews is, uh, has a word in it, is it a mistake then that our models of atonement are, are focused on or almost exclusively focused on uh, the cross? Like, should we should we take the language of atonement and apply it more broadly than strictly the cross. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I do think we need to apply it a little more broadly than the cross. Um, obviously, like Paul says that, you know, the Christ was raised for our justification, for instance, in Romans 4.25, right. um, where Paul would say, no, actually, the resurrection was connected to the process of justification even. Right. Right. And so um, we would find scriptural warrant for expanding beyond the cross and passages like that saying, no, the resurrection is actually critical for our justification. Um, so, I, yeah, I do think we need to go beyond that. And I think one place where we can easily press beyond that, um, we have classic theories of atonement and like articulations of it. Of course, we have you know, the penal satisfaction, you know, or the, the penal substitutionary atonement, the satisfaction model like we have. Uh, the Christus Victor, like, and I speak about some of all yep. of this in the book, I have a little short chapter on it, uh, uh, theories of atonement, but the one that probably gets the most bad press and I think is the most neglected would be the moral influence model. Yeah. You have atonement. a great, you have a great section on that. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I think we need to, we, we can press helpfully beyond the cross and thinking about that because like the, the way, the, the way the moral influence theory of atonement works is that we're saved in some way by imitating Jesus. That's the mm. idea that mm. he, like by looking at his moral way of living, his behaviors, and it's as we enter into that pattern that we are saved. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the scriptural foundations for that idea are unshakable. We see the, yeah. the, those ideas all over scripture, but people have struggled to put that together systematically with other ideas, especially as that gets combined with, okay, well, how then does the power of sin get broken in our lives? Like, how can we follow Jesus as Lord, right? If I'm still stuck in my sin or things like, so because of those kinds of obstacles, sometimes the moral influence model has gotten short shrift. Yeah. But I, I think that's a misunderstanding of how salvation works. Hmm. Um, and I think this is why we can think of it as something broader than just the cross. Uh, it's because we have to think about how, how Jesus became the Christ in the first place. Mm -hmm. If we're saved by putting faith in the Christ, what did, like, how did he become the Christ? Mm -hmm. Well, he became the Christ actually through his own action of trusting loyalty. Like he showed his faith, right? He he lived a faithful, allegiant life to the Father, and in do in so doing, he pursued the path of the cross, but lived an obedient life, you know, through his life, like pursued the path of the cross, uh, and then um, like as he's 
dying, right? And God looks upon this whole activity of his and he vindicates him. Mm -hmm. He justifies him and declares mm -hmm. him to be in the right. Mm -hmm. Like the idea within the moral influence model is that we then like have the opportunity to put our faith in the Christ too. Uh, but it's not just any Christ. It's the Christ who lived in a by-faith way himself, mm. right? And in so doing, we're justified. Mm. So like we're not justified apart from his moral influence, but through his moral influence. Mm. Um, and I would say that culminates in the cross, but it involves his whole act of obedience, right? It involves yeah. something larger than that. It also involves his ongoing faithfulness to us as our high priest, right? Yeah. Like we go beyond the, the cross too, that he, 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 he is the ongoing loyal one, right? Or Amen. the ongoing faithful one. And so we're stepping into his whole pattern of life. And that's something that I don't think we can just reduce to the cross, even if we see the cross as a premier example, you yeah. know, of his faithful obedience. Yeah. Love it. Thank Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. Because I mean, in the Philippians hymn, right, the cross is kind of like the punctuation mark to his life of faithfulness. It's not, he jumped down, put on a body and jumped on a cross. It's he took on, willingly took on the form of a servant or a slave by becoming yeah. human, lived the faithful life, even unto death. Right. Yes. So the death is like the, the exclamation point on the totality like of that. his life of faithfulness. Right. Yeah. I like that exclamation yeah. point. That's a good yeah. way of putting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and what that does for me too, in my own thinking, um, is it helps me think of atonement also as the whole process of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Um, that in his in his life, like the joining of his uh, the the divine nature with the human nature. Like I mean, after all, it is at one minute, right? It, that's where the the term comes from. And and I think I'm I'm probably influenced by Irenaeus here too, thinking about recapitulation, which mm -hmm. you also bring up in the in the um, in the book that that the, it's this whole process. Um, and I think your your focus on King is helpful here too, that if we focus first on the person of Jesus and then on the work, because the work has its significance from the person doing the work, right? Mm. Um, rather, I, I think that would do a lot of benefit for us to move away from articulations of atonement that feel very mechanistic and mm. kind of cheap, right? Yeah. That if we begin with God, we begin with Jesus, and we see the the process of his life, death, and resurrection, that helps guard against, um, yeah, this kind of like easy transaction. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah, transactional models. Yeah, I think that we yeah. do need to be wary. At least we have to be wary of making those the be all and end all. I always I always put it this way: there is a transaction in the sense that like I was outside the body of Christ, but the transaction is like one where I'm united to Him and to His right. body. Right. Um, and I think that when we think about it, instead of like just an exclusively personal transaction, that's when we like think go astray where it's like, OK, I wasn't saved. And then all of a sudden, like God saved me. But it's all about him and me. Right. right. The transaction, we have to think about it more in the sense of like, like, OK, like Jesus became the king. I responded to him by giving him my loyalty. Um, and in so doing, as I declared my loyalty to him, I entered into his body. And that body is the body that shares all kinds of benefits. Yeah. And it's not just a personal benefit that 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 I acquire. It's a it's a benefit that's a benefit that's a benefit that the whole body has. Like yeah. the whole body is justified. That's right. Good. And so, like, I, I think that when that helps us kind of yeah. safeguard against narcissism, right, and making it again an individualistic <laughs> story that's all about God's love for me, rather yeah. than God's love for His people and me included. Right. Right. We, right. we just have to like make sure we get the order right. Yes. Yes. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, I've, I've even been concerned with, um, you know, the <laughs> a lot of the 
Christian music that comes out today. I don't listen to a lot. I have to confess. I'm, I'm not, I try to keep up with it a little bit so I can connect with other people who are listening to it. But um, I, I've just been so struck by the way that the lyrics and a lot of Christian music that's been published in the last you know, 20, 30 years, the pronouns are all I, me. And a lot of these songs even take biblical stories that are about what God did for the people of God and make it about me, the individual, like, you know, God split the water so I could walk through them, uh, you know, or just, uh, 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 you know, um, God leaves the 99 to come after me. Whereas, you know, in the the triad of parables in Luke, it's really like, no, the community is actually supposed to wrestle with the fact that the people that we don't think should be part of that community, that's the people that God really cares about and goes after. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's just so much of, um, so much of that. And that got me thinking as I was reading towards the end of your book, as you begin to think about the why of the gospel, how it's supposed to transform us, you've got a lot of really great practical advice for us. I think a lot of the the practical advice that we take on uh, or, or that we're looking for oftentimes is like individuals, like what do I do as an individual? Um, what are some like a, B, C, D, give me a list of things to do, Matt, so I can implement them in my life, which is helpful. I mean, we, we have to do that. We have to develop disciplines uh, and take our own lives, take accountability for our own lives. But I wonder that if the story that you're telling so well in the book also should really force us as bo- local bodies to think carefully about how are our, our practices, our corporate practices, the way we're living together, in, in what ways are we actually faithfully embodying this story of restoration of glory and and what should what should that look like right mm-hmm. um cuz you you get into a uh, some yes yeah, some some really helpful analysis of what are some big objections that people have towards the gospel today some things that they see in the church that they find kind of off putting too political maybe um too focused on individual conversion you know these kind of things and I'm just kind of wondering, like, in your mind, like, what are some things that churches should should be doing, churches could be doing to make sure that the the King Jesus story is being centered in corporate life together and being the thing that we all kind of rally around rather than a host of other um a host of other things. And, and rather than maybe discipleship programs that are that are based on models of gospel that aren't fully uh that, that have some some key distortions hmm. yeah that's a that's a great question um so i do have a chapter you know in the book um as you know on um yeah kind of why is the gospel still good for good news for the nuns and duns um mm-hmm. and yeah i'm working on specifically then like using some of the barna groups research yep. you know where the barna group has done professional sociological research on why are people not interested in church? Um, so it helps us maybe press beyond like what we might assume to be the reason to actually, you know, like a valid sociological studies about people who aren't involved in church. Why do they say they don't want to be Christians? Right. Um, and so, yeah, hypocrisy comes out. Number one, um, convert counting is really high, right? Yes, As, um, yes. The idea that like people are just trying to convert me just so they can get another one in the fold, another right. number, right? Another right. button to pew or whatever it might be. Uh, all these things are concerned. So yeah, I do have some practical suggestions as part of that. And when I think beyond um, some of the things I mentioned there, um, I do think micro communities are really important, especially in our 
uh, current landscape, when the church model is like an entertainment model, mm-hmm. like where, okay, we have a, let's just say it's a big church of a thousand people. And like, it's like everybody comes and they watch the pastor and maybe they're watching a screen at the same time. Cause the auditorium's big enough that like, th- that's, you know, practical. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's a multi-site location where like you're actually being streamed a video from somewhere else, or you're watching church at home, but you're watching a pastor preach a message on a screen. Um, I think one of the things we're really losing is micro communities because mm. if the model is sort of like a, you know, a, like, well, here we come together as a whole body and we watch the pastor and then we, we engage in corporate praise, but it's still an individually focused kind of experience. And then I leave as an individual or I leave as my family unit. Like we really need to do something to strengthen micro communities. And I think the church has moved away from like Sunday school models. A lot mm-hmm. of churches have. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's actually to our detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, that we need to, it doesn't have to always be a learning opportunity, but I think we need to do more to create like micro community opportunities, especially in our really busy landscape, even on Sunday morning yeah. and to say like, okay, like the main service is going to start at, at, you know, 10 AM, but at 9 AM we have like, we have 16 micro communities. These are not like, these aren't small groups per se, but these are places where, okay, one, one group's coming together to pack some lunches that um, are going to be given to um, help you know, with charity in the city and mm-hmm. another group's coming together for prayer. Like it's a prayer warrior group. Another group's meeting together, you know, uh, to talk about, you know, um, parenting or, mm-hmm. you know, th- these aren't life groups. There's, there's some educational, there's some experiential dimension to all of that. But I think that the church has either tried to move those all to weeknights where people are just too busy to commit. And a lot of discipleship's not happening or they're just not doing it at all. Mm-hmm. And, I think that's a real loss. Like we need to have experiences together as the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is if you're at a church with a thousand people, you can't experience a thousand people personally. Right. Right. But we, you need the chance to be the, the, the head, the foot, the elbow, the armpit, whatever it might be yeah. like in a smaller group. And I don't know that life groups are, are enough to get that done. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see more churches doing micro community things when you have still a somewhat captive audience on a Sunday morning. Yeah, that's in, that's great. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, because it, it strikes me that I think a lot of people in our culture, whether they can articulate it or not, are very hungry for authentic community. They're very hungry for, you know, just being in a space where they're cared for, they're loved. Yeah, and um, we're losing the skill too. I think people are uh, hungry for it, but they're also freaked out by it. They're like, sure. I'd rather hide behind my cell phone. Right. Because it's like when I'm in that space now, I don't even know how to behave. And I think it's actually getting worse. Like people who are the older generation, they still like, yeah, they have a lot of experience connecting personally. People, especially, you know, their teens, 20s, like a lot of them, like they grew up with this native cell phone culture. And the easiest thing to do if you feel threatened at all is just to hide behind that screen. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they're hungry for it. But they're also, yeah, there's also a lot of just fear. Um, And so, yeah micro communities, I think are a place where, yeah, we can, we can get a lot done in the church to actually experience the body of Christ together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one last thing I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on and, um, hear you unpack a little bit. You, you, I think rightly insist that the gospel is political, um, but you're careful to define what you mean by that. And so I'd love to just kind of give you a chance to, yeah, speak to our listeners a little bit about what does it mean to take the gospel seriously as a, as a, as a political statement and what would it look like for churches to do that? Well, because instantly when we hear that term, our minds jump to a right, left, modern democratic political framework. I mean, I was, 
when I was uh, working at a seminary, now undergrad school, but when working at a seminary, really wonderful dean. And in the meeting, he said, you know, um, kind of he saw our job as faculty is we're trying to try to take people from left and right and move them to the center. And, uh, you know, and I said, you know, to be honest, I said, that's not my job. I'm not trying to move people to being at the center. I'm trying to get them to think out of that framework as their primary framework. I want their primary mm -hmm. framework to be the kingdom of God. And let's get that ingrained, right? Um, so anyway, I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on how you go about articulating the political nature of the gospel, uh, especially within such a fraught political climate that we see uh, today. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say I do it very well um, in terms of trying to figure this all out for myself. In terms of, you know, trying to interpret scripture, um, I would say that uh, it's very clear that like the gospel is a, a social political claim. Or when mm -hmm. we say Jesus is king, like when we make that confession, like we're being constituted as a citizen body under his authority. Mm. And I think that's the hardest thing, actually, for the church to do on any given Sunday or in any given church meeting, right, is actually to proclaim Jesus is the king right now in such a way that he's given sovereign authority to rule. Mm. Um, and I think that we often fail to do that when we come together as a church. We, we sing praise songs, we hear a sermon, we, but we, we don't actually collectively say, I'm giving myself over to your authority right now, Jesus. Mm. We struggle to do that. Mm. Um, and I think pastors are trying to often lead people to do that as part of the sermon, right? That's part of the, the engagement. But, we, we, you know, but I think that's a, a real challenge that the church faces. Um, but I think that's necessary because that's what constitutes us as a political body, mm. right? Um, that uh, Paul speaks about this in Philippians about like uh, about the gospel and its connection mm. to um, to constituting a citizen's citizen body. I think the reference would be Philippians one twenty seven, if I'm remembering off the top of my head. Mm. Um, but he but he calls us to live worthily as citizens of the gospel, mm -hmm. right? Um, and as part of all that, it means that when Jesus is being proclaimed as the King, like we actually become a body politic. Mm -hmm. Right. That would be um, that would be the kind of the core biblical idea. So the idea that the gospel is not political is nonsense. I mm -hmm. think we need to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. But where where is the source of authority or power reside? It resides in the church. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that we have to realize like what it means to live as faithful citizens under Jesus is that our politics should emerge from the local church. Like what it would mean to be faithful politically is to be a citizen of the king and to allow that political like vision and that the uh, and that. Uh, the, pra the practices that align with the king's work to flow out from that space, mm -hmm. and that we don't really have any hope um, of winning a culture war, and nor do I think that's the, the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is to like actually be an alternative citizen body under the king's authority mm -hmm. in such a way that we're living like a radically good life under him. Now, again, we get into larger questions of like, well, isn't a larger concern for society demand that we try to, you know, inculcate good laws within the citizen body as a whole, even if we realize Jesus is our king? Don't mm -hmm. we have a responsibility to do our best with these other laws? Probably. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, um, but that just can't be our primary focus. That can't mm -hmm. be our the main business we're about. And when it when that happens, we've been captured, I think, by partisan politics. Whenever we decide, no, what I really need to do is wear a red T-shirt or a blue T-shirt and spend all my time sitting at a pole or waving a sign um, rather than actually saying, no, like right here, emerging from the church, like I'm going to like be a, a, a King Jesus ambassador and I'm going to bring his political vision to the world. Right. Um, that's, I think, where we are most successful in terms of our, our current political stance. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just to highlight a point you've made here and you also articulate in the book, if Jesus's way is the way of the cross, 
the 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 disposition or the mind of the messiah that's supposed to govern the body um that has to be the way that we enter into that's that has to be the way we show up in the mm. in in the process right so very good yeah if we assert assert domination over our, <laughs> our ideological opponent as a christian we've lost actually according to the rules of the gospel we we might win we might win the election that we wanted to win or, or whatever but if we do it through non-gospel or anti-christ means we we've kind of lost the greater battle in that that's sort of what i hear you saying yes. a little bit yeah i think that's a fair way to summarize for sure yeah and it also i mean it strikes me that i think if we're being honest in our churches many people feel more aligned more comfortable with somebody who has a red or a blue t-shirt than they do with someone who another person who is a co-pledge in allegiance to to Jesus right so if if somebody votes differently than you, but they're committed to the lordship of Jesus, that should be kind of like foundational, uh, what holds us together, not our, you know, our allegiance to team red or team blue or yes or whatever. Yeah. 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 Very, yeah, very good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just got to start with this allegiance to King Jesus. That's got to be our, our initial politic. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, I, I really appreciate the conversation a lot, Matt. Thanks so much. It's really wonderful to catch up. I highly encourage everybody to grab a copy of this book. Uh, I, I think ideally it's made for um, small group studies, home group studies, the classroom. I, I'm going to be using it in undergraduate classroom as well. I think it's it's such a, uh, a helpful book that um, really clearly lays out the gospel for us and gives us the why, as you say in the title of why this story, why this story needs to inform everything we do. So I appreciate you a lot, Matt. Thanks for your scholarship. Thanks for your fidelity to Jesus. And um, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate you too, Max. Thank you.